Welcome to this episode of the Sports Medicine Science and Performance Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andy Franklin Miller. I'm delighted to uh, recommence the uh, Sports Medicine Research Podcasts with the first paper from last week's research review. Uh, a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Ender King from the Sports Surgery Clinic in Century, uh, is going to talk uh, us through his paper, Factors Influencing Return to Play and Second ACL Ligament Injury Rates in Level 1 Athletes After Primary ACL Reconstruction, uh, published uh, this year in the American Journal of Sports Medicine. Um, many of you will already know Ender. He's been on the podcast a number of times. Um, Ender, welcome. Andy, thank you very much. And uh, I'm very excited to be at this reincarnation uh, at the podcast. It's been sorely missed. Absolutely, absolutely. You could always do that extra bit of work. Um, now, um, for those people who haven't had the pleasure of listening to you at this point, do you want to just summarise your career to date for us? Yeah, um, I, I'm currently the head of performance, uh, as you said, at the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. And for those that are unfamiliar or less familiar with the Sports Surgery Clinic, it's a, a private orthopaedic hospital uh, with a large sports medicine department and research wing. Um, and so in my role ahead of performance, I look after our residential athlete program. Uh, they're athletes who come for um, either orthopedic or surgery, surgical intervention, uh, followed by intensive rehab immediately post-operative, or those with who are returning from long-term injuries and are looking for a, an overview of their presentation uh, from a sports medicine, uh, biomechanics, and a rehabilitation point of view. And they can spend blocks of time with something from... Um, a week up to up to six and seven weeks at a time uh, and also involved in our numerous uh, research projects and um, we have nine PhDs uh, running currently and um, my own personal interests around I suppose our work together uh, in, in athletic groin pain uh, lower limb biomechanics and in particular uh, in relation to where I've done my PhD which is in the use of 3D biomechanics uh, after ACL reconstruction, so uh, we've lots of lots of concurrent research streams at the minute, and uh, they're the areas that we're we're moving on to new projects with going forward. Absolutely, and look, and this is part of your uh, PhD work, so it's always good to uh, to get a bit of exposure for it. Um, so, I mean, the, the tagline for this is pretty clear. We've got two surgeons from the Sports Surgery Clinic in Dublin. There's 1,780 patients, 95% or so follow up at two years, and return to play rates are 81%. Um, I guess the big difference here, and we'll talk about this a bit later, was there was 11.9% ipsilateral injuries in hamstring graft as opposed to the 1.9% in bone patella bone. So it's a, it's a pretty big study. Um, it, uh, I've tried to summarize it in the research review, but let's sort of start pulling out some detail and some specifics about it. Um, so I might ask, first of all, like we started with 1,780 patients. You ended up with 1,400 or so in the study. Talk us through that process. Yeah, so data collection was over a 33-month period uh, with, with uh, two of our uh, orthopedic colleagues, uh, Mr. Ray Morn, who's a director of uh, medicine here at the Sports Surgery Clinic, and uh, Mr. Mark Jackson. Um, so we prospectively followed every single ACL reconstruction that they had uh, over that 33-month uh, period. Um, and for the purposes of the study, we focused primarily on those who had a, a primary ACL reconstruction. Um, so those that were outside of the ages of 13 to 45, um, those that had a previous ACL reconstruction, um, or those that had a multi-ligament repair or some other intervention that might influence that post-operative or rehabilitative period, um, they were uh, omitted from that large cohort of 1,700 uh, 
and that's how we ended up with the fourteen hundred for the main uh, for the main study follow up. Got you. And that's a that's a big number. Were, they, were these consecutive patients? What sort of time period did we collect the data for over? Yeah, so this this started back at the beginning of uh, 2016. Uh, it was over a 33 month period, and it was every uh, it was every ACL reconstruction that that the two surgeons did. Um, there's a good overview, I suppose. The the group is representative of what we would have seen uh, clinically, and about 75 percent were male athletes. And um, not that we all know there's a higher incidence of female re-rupture, but we tend to see more uh, male field sport participation here in Ireland. Um, it was across uh, the majority of, of the main four field sports that we would see, which we are indigenous games with Gaelic football and hurling, but also the highly prevalent uh, soccer uh, and rugby. And then the smaller cohorts involved in, in snow sports, basketball, athletics, etc., um, and what's also interesting across the entire cohort was that uh, 97% um, intended uh, preoperatively to return to uh, the same level of participation or higher. Um, so again, the, the, the anticipation of those coming for surgery is that they're, they're, they're coming with the intention of returning to play. Um, and as you, again, you'd see mostly in the literature, 65% were non-contact in nature. So it, it was a large cohort quite representative of those that play uh, field sports uh, and involved uh, every consecutive uh, ACL carried out by the two surgeons over that period. And you know the literature here pretty well. The the intention to return to level one sport is that common in other studies? I mean, does this correlate well with other work that's been published? It wouldn't be um, consistently uh, recorded as part of your preoperative workup, but what it does show is that those that have um, a lower intent or a lesser intent to return to play. Um, tend to have lower return to play rates so as you find uh, very often depending on the stage of life that, that an ACL reconstruction hits you um, you may be less bothered or interested in returning to, to play amateur sport or work might get busy or family life increases so that intent to return is an important marker which may influence their ability to return afterwards. Sure and it's a big cohort there's clearly some challenges in in pulling that together in terms of the the accuracy of the data but also just genuinely in the collection of it what were some of the problems with that big cohort um again it, i suppose volume is, is is the number one problem even though it was a, a single center study and only two orthopedic surgeons i suppose were lucky to have such a, a high and, and busy caseload and um, so trying to create a care pathway whereby from their initial diagnosis and, and date setting with the surgeon uh, to get same day pre-operative uh, overview with them and data collection and then to follow them up uh, with an interoperative uh, we, we developed and built a bespoke uh, ACL registry to cater for all the data points um, that would be collected from pre-op right through to two and now hopefully in the future five-year follow-up um, and obviously you need a big team to be able to uh, consistently make sure that what we're recording is accurate that we're collecting all the, uh, the uh, participants at different points along the way uh, and that the data is robust then for follow-up because it's one thing having having large numbers, but it's another thing to make sure that the the, the quality of the data is appropriate, um, and obviously it's all about the follow up then afterwards. And then contextually again with the literature, although so, so that the listener can kind of put it in perspective with other studies they might have read, the, the concomitant injury rate seemed low to me at first glance: twenty four percent medial meniscal tear, thirty eight percent lateral. Um, is that comparable or were they overlapping or, or how did that really work out? Was there some chondral damage and what else was there? Yeah, so again, the, 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 all the findings were from intraoperative findings. Um, so the, this is what the surgeon found at the time of surgery. I suppose that the common description in, in textbooks is that unhappy triad where you would have an MCL injury, 
uh, a meniscal injury and, and ACL injury all happen concurrently. Um, and that certainly is, is not the case. Uh, you can have one or, or other or, or multiple of them happening concurrently. Um, but the meniscal uh, injury rates were uh, similar to that found in, in the previous research. Um, one thing of noting, though, is that very often, and some of our colleague, orthopedic colleagues would say that, that every ACL injury has some form of chondral insult um, whether that's even on a micro level and doesn't necessarily need to be on a macro scale. But those are the, the, the findings that, that uh, they had when they scoped them um, during the operative procedure. For sure. So they had to have sort of grade one or above in order for them to have chondral pathology because it was surgical. Exactly. Exactly. All findings were surgical. Uh, all reported findings in the study are surgical as opposed to radio- radiological. For sure. Now, primary outcome measure. Um, it's, this is a big study. There is a lot of data, and um, and trying to sort of pull out the relevance is is tricky without actually looking at what the objective was before it started. Otherwise, it looks like a big registry paper where sort of the the answers are impenetrable. So, just talk me through that outcome measure. That was the principle, and then what was the sort of underlying reason behind the others? Yeah, the the, the main focus obviously is is second injury and re-injury both for the surgeon and for the for the athlete and for those of us involved in the rehabilitation of these athletes uh, we're keen to see what factors pre-operatively and intraoperatively may lead to differences in outcome from a, from a re-injury point of view um, but when you only report re-injury you're missing uh, the the completion of that picture of what a successful ACL reconstruction is so I might have no re-injury but if I haven't returned to play and we're very important that, that we focused in on level one sports because the, the, you know, the, the level of sport you participate has an influence on your re-injury risk. Uh, so we're very keen to have a large level one cohort and, and, and um, review and explore uh, the influence within those athletes uh, as well as just the, the general population. Um, and thirdly then is the patient reported outcome. I might have returned to play and I mightn't have any second ACL injury, but my knee might be quite sore all the time. Um, and so the IKDC score was an important um, patient reporter outcome to see how they felt their knee was functioning. And so if we felt we felt that if we covered uh, re-injury as our primary outcome measure, but if we also covered return to play rates and uh, IKDC, we would have that overall blanket of uh, success in relation to second injury, how my knee pain was, and, and was able to return to, to high, high demand sport. Sure. And look, one of the impressive things I think is that you know eighty-two percent of patients return to play at that level. And for those that might under, might not understand what grade one um, sports are, it might be worth just highlighting that in terms of just talking about the difficulty in that return to play measure, because it's often criticised in the literature because there's not one definitive meaning behind it. Absolutely. Um, so obviously, there's different risks. Uh, to ACL injury depending on different sports so you don't see too many cyclists picking up uh, ACL injury for, for example um, and so level one sports refers back to sports involved in jumping, lav- uh, landing, pivoting and change direction so those that are going to place high loads through the knee and obviously have a higher risk of knee injury and in particular ACL injury uh, as a result um, so when we were looking at return to play we, we split that into return to all sports but also in particular return to level one sport um, and you had to return to the same sport and the same level of competition as you did um, before surgery to, account, to have counted as returning to play. And the average return to play time was approximately um, 11 months uh, post-surgery. So again, being able to, a, a lot of registries would have reported re-injury rates, um, but that would be for, for all uh, who had surgery and not all of them would have been level one athletes or returning to that demand of sport. Um, 
So again, we thought it very important to tease out exactly those that are at the highest risk. What would their return to play rights, rates like and what would their re-injury rates like? Sure. And, and did you see much of a difference between the, the patients that did return to play and, and that 18% who didn't return to play? Was there anything unique that this part of the study identified? Yeah, when we looked at, at uh, the differences between those who hadn't returned and hadn't returned to level one sports, um, some of the previous literature was there. So younger, uh, the younger athletes were more likely to return. And there's always this playing uh, playoff or trade-off between age, return to play and re-injury, and that we know that younger athletes have a higher susceptibility of second injury, but we also know they're more likely to return to sports of a higher risk. So again, is it because I'm young, I'm at, I'm at risk, or is it because I'm returning to high-demand sport? Um, those that had a, a higher preoperative marks activity square, scale, uh, so the level of, of, of sport they were playing, um, also had a higher return to play rate. Um, and those that had a higher ACL RSI or readiness to return to sport index um, as their perception about their readiness to return uh, also had a higher return. So those that were younger uh, were more active and felt more ready to return uh, were related to higher return rates, but nothing in relation to graft-type chondral injury uh, or any of the intraoperative findings. And does that re-injury rate compare to the literature? Um, the return to play rate is, is quite similar. Clara Dern has a, um, a quite uh, comprehensive systematic review, an updated systematic review that would have uh, the return to play rate at 82%, um, but very often that's across all sports. Um, so this was again was it was in level one sport. So again, quite a quite a relatively high return to play rate for a high demand sport. And and look, I think the thing that's of interest is the is the primary outcome measure in terms of the injury rate, and and we see that it's it's pretty low. Um, but there's a big difference. There's one point three percent injury for bone patella bone and eight point three percent for for hamstrings, and that reignites this. This big, which graft is suitable, um, which graft is the best debate. What, what are your thoughts in terms of this series of patients in terms of that question? Yeah, it's, it's, it's an area of, I suppose, that, that the pendulum tends to swing madly in one direction, then madly in the other. And certainly the reported higher uh, re-injury rate in hamstring tendon grafts um, has been coming back to the fore again. Um, I suppose it, when, from a rehabilitation point of view, uh, you're always your focus is on what factors will influence re-injury, very much from a physical point of view, but also what deficits will you have after a particular graft selection. Um, but also then you have to say that, look, is there a difference in, in, in healing times? Uh, we know that in terms of incorporating within the tunnel uh, soft tissue grafts, uh, like a hamstring graft, takes longer to incorporate within the tunnel than um, a bone graft or a bone patella tendon bone graft. Um, and we know that they take longer to, to mature. Um, so it may not be surprising then that from the 11th month on, month on um, there was a difference in re-injury rate between patellar tendons and hamstring tendons with uh, patellar tendons 80% or over 80% less likely to, to re-injure uh, every month from, 11 month, uh, from month 11 on. So when we look to the predictive ability, so could our intraoperative or preoperative variables predict who would go on to re-injury? Uh, um, there was a, uh, only a fair uh, predictive ability, uh, an area under the curve of 0.72. But again, um, uh, age and, and graft, and graft selection in particular, were the strong... Um, factors to come, to come out in that prediction model so certainly um for for orthopedic consultants it's 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 a it's a uh, it's a trade-off between uh, which graft am i most comfortable doing which graft will give me the best uh, stability within the knee and which will um have the least uh, 
comorbidities or, or, or re-injuries afterwards. And what was also very interesting when you look at the, the time to re-injury was that there was no relationship between uh, time from surgery after six months uh, and re-injury rate. So whether you return between six and nine months, nine and 12 months or 12 and 15 months, it didn't have any influence on, uh, on re-injury rate. So again, some of those um, uh, commentaries or, or opinions around you know, the, the re-injury rate is highest um, in, in the first year, or you should wait for up to a year, or even some suggestions you should wait longer, doesn't seem to be supported within uh, within the data that we that we've got within this paper. Yeah, and no, it's interesting, and and I, I guess we should highlight that this this group weren't rehabbed with consistency. These these patients uh, returned to their own therapists, broadly speaking, uh, and were observed through that process. Now, I guess one of the confounders is, and this study doesn't highlight it, is actually the observation process through this was pretty comprehensive insofar as the the biomechanical tracking of patients through the study, um, which obviously may have influenced it. And, and of course, we perform significantly fewer hamstring grafts, allografts, quad tendon grafts than bone patella bone. So that, I would expect, would influence the data. How, what were the thoughts in terms of trying to control for that? Yeah, so again, graft selection was by, by surgeon preference. Um, based on, on the clinical presentation they had in front of you. Um, obviously, if you're looking to make a true comparison between graphs, you would have a randomized control trial, uh, which would randomly assign one to the other. Um, but this was clinical practice. Um, some of the feedback actually from the reviewers was quite useful. Uh, they queried whether you know um, the fact that 80% of the graphs were patellar tendon, that the surgeons would be better practiced at patellar tendon graphs than they were at hamstring graphs. Um, but then the, the counter argument to that was that, well, between them, they had 290 uh, hamstring uh, grafts uh, over that period, which is almost 100 a year. Um, so again, the, a lot of surgeons wouldn't even have that number uh, when hamstring graft was their primary um, graft of choice. Um, so they're still getting a, a large volume of, of both hamstring and patellar tendon grafts. Um, and so it, 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 the, the likelihood of, of, of being better practiced than one or the other is less likely to be influential. Sure. And um, IKDC, it, it's in virtually every ACL study that's going in terms of putting that contextually into it. There were no surprises with IKDC? No. Uh, again, the, the, the averages across the cohort uh, in, in the high 80s are consistent with uh, most follow-up uh, studies at, at two years in that there's a high level of function, but not having to go back to perfectly normal levels across the group. Um, when we looked at the difference between those who had higher IKDC scores, as in 90 or greater, and lower IKDC scores, which was less than 80, again, we found that younger athletes tend to have better recovery of IKDC scores. Those that were doing higher levels of activity tended to have IKDC, uh, higher IKDC scores. And those that had changes in the medial joint, whether that was a, a, menisect sorry, a, a menisectomy or chondral damage to the medial femoral condyle, they tended to have lower IKDC scores as well. Um, the interesting point here is, is, is the playoff between um, graft selection in terms of IKDC and graft selection in terms of re-injury. And those that had a patellar tendon graft, there was a higher proportion of them in the, in the lower uh, IKDC score group than there was um, than hamstring grafts. And so you're left with this trade-off in that generally uh, in the immediate post-operative period uh, or rehabilitative period, there's greater anterior knee pain uh, reported with patellar tendon graft. But again, ultimately, I suppose you want your grafts, if you think about the, the, the main reason you're picking your graft is to ensure stability of the knee and, and continuity of that stability over a long period of time. Um, and so 
if you have a hamstring graft selection, you know you'll have extra hamstring weakness. You know you'll be more susceptible to hamstring injury, especially inner range knee flexion weakness. Uh, similarly, if you have a selective a patellar tendon graft, um, you're going to have greater quadriceps weakness. That's going to leave you more susceptible to anterior knee pain if you don't redevelop that strength and that rate of force development prior to uh, prior to beginning higher demand activities such as running and change direction. And so I suppose the take home from this would be select the graft that you feel is going to give the, the best long-term stability to the knee. And then uh, as my point of view is always that uh, uh, anterior knee pain or, or hamstring specific weakness, that's a rehab problem. That's not a, a surgical problem the, the surgical decision making may influence the problems that you have in your plate but ultimately each rehabilitation program should be adaptable to be able to cater for that during the, the rehabilitation program and and there were some contralateral injuries in this in this group too and it, it, it's always an interesting thing as to whether there is a, a sort of tendonopath type property to the tendon that that um causes um, susceptibility or whether it's biomechanical or whether there's a multitude of risk factors that we don't really understand. I'm presuming there was no um, clear um, indication that that was identified with the contralateral as this part of the study because it wasn't really powered to identify it. Yeah, so um, it's interesting that you're twice as likely, or at least this cohort and in the other research, you're twice as likely to rupture your healthy limb, so the contralateral limb, than you are your your uh, your operated limb. Um, so whether that uh, is something that's inherent to that athlete's genetics, we know obviously family history can be a, a risk factor, as you say. It may influence their, their collagen type um, and, and leave them more susceptible to ACL injury. Uh, we also know that um, whether that influences the, the overall deconditioning that happens post-ACL uh, injury, and that's why we were keen to collect prospectively biomechanical data uh, on all of these athletes moving forward so that we can begin to explore um, the, the as well as combining and, and looking at, at the surgical and preoperative and demographic data like we've done, that we can begin to look at the, at the biomechanical data as well to try and identify risk factors specific and independent to contralateral injury and specific and independent to, to ipsilateral injury as well. I mean, I think that's probably the most exciting part of this in that we've sort of set the the playing field now with with this cohort of patients, but there's a lot more to come. Do you want to just give us a little indication of of what's to come on this group? Because um, clearly they're, they're not only going on to be followed up at five years, which is obviously about to start and ongoing now, but but there's more data to come from this set. Yeah, so we, we've just submitted um, the biomechanical follow-up of... Um, uh, comparing those that went on to re-rupture their operated limb and those that didn't. Uh, and we also have uh, data on those that went to re-rupture their contralateral limb and didn't. Um, and so that's just been submitted for, for peer review. Uh, that's all in male athletes, of field sports. We also have a large female cohort that we're now analysing. Um, and then going forward, the, the goal is in the next uh, couple of weeks is to finish the analysis combining the orthopaedic and demographic data with the biomechanical data. Um, so we, we know from, from this study here, there may be influences, obviously, of things like age uh, and graft selection in particular. But if we can begin to combine that with the biomechanical data that we have built up um, previously, we may be able to develop a, a very rich and colourful picture as to where that athlete is uh, at, at various stages in rehab and what the risk profile is and how we can begin to make more uh, independent and bespoke interventions those athletes to try and modify their risk as, as required 
Look, that's brilliant. And, um, and, and I think we're excited about the data and excited about where it's going as well in terms of the future. Um, and uh, we might wrap it up there. I think that um, the purpose of this really was to try to give a, an audible summary of the paper. I think we've done a very good job um, at, at doing it. Um, I, we should say, actually, that there's, it, there's a bigger group associated with this. And, and SSC, we're very fortunate to, um, at various points over the last five years, have a research advisory board. Um, particularly with this study, it's been Greg Meyer and uh, Siobhan Strike, um, who have been pretty instrumental. Do you want to just talk a little bit about their role within this group? Yeah, um, Siobhan has been... Um our, our advisor, um, our outside advisor, uh, primarily around uh, biomechanics. She supervised my PhD. She's based in the University of Roehampton in London. And she um, has a background around uh, gait analysis, amputees, etc. And so is, is one step removed uh, as quite a pure biomechanist uh, from the ACL focus that, and the clinical focus that we have here, uh, which is, is, is fantastic. Um, and then secondly, obviously, Greg Meyer is... A hugely a prolific researcher biomechanically, but in particular in the region of ACL. So his knowledge of the research uh, of, of some of the pitfalls uh, to, to, to watch out for during the data collection process and analysis process, and uh, how best to tailor the questions to make the most use of the data that we have has been uh, instrumental in making it the success has been to date. That's awesome. Uh, and uh, absolute pleasure to talk to you, obviously. And um, as we um, face some new challenges in the uh, in the coming weeks. We're uh, about to sort of almost retraining to become a general medical hospital as SSCs. Um, facilities are given up to uh, to general medicine to try to assist with the countrywide process of uh, looking after patients with COVID nineteen. So we're we're uh, both entering into the unknown for the next uh, a couple of months. But this study obviously will be ongoing in the background. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's. Um... You, you think what you do is important, especially around ACL rehab, and it is important to uh, to, to the patients that you're treating and their outcomes. But um, there's definitely a, a real dose of reality for everyone now. So it's um, we're in a lucky position to hopefully be able to contribute uh, to, to the to the ongoing situation in the short term and hopefully back to a new normal before too long. Absolutely, Ender. Thanks very much. Thank you, Andy.